Good evening, everyone. It's, it's great to gather again this evening. And we're going to be in the book of Ruth one last time. The last time that we were in Ruth, we started in chapter 4, and we looked at the first uh, section there, um, and we left uh, Boaz at the city gate where he had declared his intention to redeem Ruth in the presence of the elders and the witnesses. So there's to be a marriage between Boaz and Ruth. And where we left them, we're about to see a blessing from those elders. So let's read together Ruth chapter 4, and we're going to read from the second half of verse 11 through to 22. This is the people speaking a blessing. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthy in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for um, this journey that we have been on in the book of Ruth. We thank you for the glory that we have beheld as your people as we've opened up this book. We thank you for what you've done in the life of the church through it. And so we ask again one last time that you would open up our eyes to see the bigger picture of your glory and your sovereignty and your reign, your goodness and your love in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1998 cartoon movie Ants, the story pulls you into this, um, the lives of this colony of ants, and in particular, one ant who was quirky, and uh, his name was Z, and you're pulled into his heroic efforts to save the colony from a madman, or a mad ant, I should say, and to win the love of the ant princess, Bala. And after 90 minutes of spending time with these, in the lives of these ants, the movie ends in this way. It pans out from the colony, and what you realize is that all of this action has been taking part in the middle of Central Park in New York City. And it's this shocking realization. This is just one little story in the midst of a much bigger story. Well, the author of Ruth does pretty much the same thing at the end of this book. Now, don't you find it amazing 
If you consider the book of Ruth and where it is in the Bible, in the history section of the Bible, so you have the, the Pentateuch, right? And it tells the story of, um, from Exodus, telling the story of, of the Exodus out of Egypt, God's rescuing Israel from slavery. You've got the book of Joshua, which speaks about the conquest, Israel going into the land of Canaan. You've got the book of Judges that speaks of the spiritual decline of the people. And First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, the, the books of the lines of the, the kings of Israel and Judah leading right up to the exile. Don't you find it amazing that we see in the middle of all these books, Ruth. Ruth is just this, this whole book devoted to the domestic affairs of one little family in Israel. Well, right at the end of the story, the author reveals it is a story within a story, within the grand narrative of Scripture. This family that God loves and cares for is connected to something so much bigger than them, something grand, something that has been happening behind the scenes the entire time. It's like in the movie Lord of the Rings, where Sam says to Frodo, he says, I wonder what kind of story we've stumbled into, Mr. Frodo. And like the hobbits who stumbled into something grand in the world, so the author shows the great, great story that Ruth and Boaz and Naomi were a part of. It's a story that's going to go beyond even what the author could fully see, let alone the characters. And it's helpful for us as well. Because we sometimes can lose focus of the truth that our lives are part of the bigger story of what God is doing in the world and in history. So often we find ourselves like Naomi in chapter 1. I know I do. The point where she believes that hope has drained from her life and that all of life is just a shambles. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Do you remember? For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Well, we can see here at the end of the book that even in that moment, God was working a fullness, not only for her life, but for the lives of many beyond all imagination. And his love was operating already in that moment in full force for Naomi, even though she could not see it. And the author now at the end of the book comes back to these themes of fullness and love at the close. And I believe we are invited into the peace of knowing right now as we close this book that our lives are filled with the fullness of Christ and our lives are surrounded by his love. So that's all we're going to do tonight as we close this book. We're going to look at these two, um, these two themes, fullness and love, as we pan out and see the bigger picture. So number one, the bigger picture of this theme of fullness. So after Boaz's declaration before the crowd at the city gate, what follows is a blessing from the people that we read a little bit earlier. One blessing that will come to pass soon in the birth of a child. Let me read to you again verses 11 to 13. They say, may the Lord make the woman, speaking of Ruth, who's coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman." 
And as we read that, we immediately should raise our eyes a little bit because it begins here to shake us out of the, the picture that we have, the focus that we have on just this little family. The author's drawing our attention back to the, the distant past and the blessing that is spoken over Ruth is a, a very big blessing to call over Moabites. Ian Duguid in his commentary says this, the themes of blessing, name, offspring, and the building of a house of Israel resonate with deep chords in the history of God's people. These themes go all the way back to God's promise to Abraham of a great name and a great nation that would come from his offspring so that all the peoples on earth would find a blessing for themselves in him. So the author's doing, he's going back. May your house be like that of Rachel and Leah, who, who built up the house of Israel. And Ruth is actually a tiny fulfillment of that promise that was made to Abraham, isn't she? A Gentile. She left Moab. She took refuge under Yahweh's wings. But Ruth is not just to be a recipient of the promise. She will play a role in the greater fulfillment to come. From the start of this book, there's been a question, hasn't there? Will there be an heir? Will there be somebody to carry on the family name? And here at the end of the book, we finally see that God does provide that heir. He does it directly. There are only two places in the whole book of Ruth where we see God's direct hand of action. Do you, does anyone remember the first one? Major points if you can remember this one. All right, when they had to leave Moab, it was because of a famine, right? And it was God who ended that famine. It says he brought um, food to Bethlehem, to Judah, to the land of Judah. And it was that action that brought Naomi and Ruth back to the land of Israel. It was that action that ultimately led to the meeting between Boaz and Ruth in his field, where Ruth has gone to glean in search of food. In verse 13, it says this, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and, she went in, and he went into her. This is the second and the only other time where God's direct hand is seen. And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And so the tension of this theme of emptiness and fullness is finally brought to a climax. Remember that theme that was introduced in chapter one where Naomi says, I went away full, in other words, I went away with family, I went away with sons, and God has brought me back to the land empty. We see that theme reach its climax here in the description of this child's role. An amazing description of a child. Look at verse 14 and 15. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Remember, Boaz was the kinsman redeemer, right? This is unusual in Scripture to refer to a child in this way. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. It was emptiness in the beginning, but here we see Naomi full, right? This, this son, this baby in her arms. Can you remember another question? And I've asked you this before. Can you remember the theme of chapter one, the key word of chapter one? Anybody? It's the word return. The word return, we see it about a dozen times in chapter one. 
It's used even in Naomi's word, words, her emptiness. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back. It's literally caused me to return empty. And it's that same word we see here again at the end in description of this child. When it says restorer of life, literally it means returner of life. It's the same Hebrew word. The author is trying to focus our attention, saying this is the conclusion of the matter. God's sovereignty throughout all of Naomi's apparent emptiness. He is planning and he is bringing fullness in her life. And we know that God was not just planning this for her, but for all of Israel and in, indeed for all nations, even in this little story. In verse 17, and the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name. A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And you realize that this little family, from this little family comes the great king. That's why one of the main reasons I believe this story was written in the middle of Naomi's tragedy, God was working something that he had already planned from long ago, and it was something that would ripple out from this family to touch the lives of all his people. Now that's how far this book pans out, but it ends, I believe, as a, like a relay athlete holding up the baton for some, something else to happen. It ends with a genealogy you find that interesting at the end, that genealogy from Perez to David? That genealogy is taken up by whom? In the New Testament. By Matthew, right? Matthew takes that same genealogy when he opens his gospel and he carries it to another son, the one who is the greater redeemer and the restorer of life. And that's the bigger picture as well that we are meant to see today. This isn't only about the King David, this is about another king, a greater king to come, and Naomi's story therefore is our story as well. Naomi's story is there to teach us to trust our God in our own times of empty. John Piper writes this, Ruth was written to give us encouragement and hope that all the perplexing turns in our lives are going somewhere good. They do not lead off a cliff. In all the setbacks of our lives as believers, God is plotting for our joy. Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just in our heads, that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. God is always sovereignly accomplishing His purposes even when we cannot trace them out. And He has promised for His children that the end of all things, the end of all things is this. It is the fullness that He has in store for us. A fullness in Christ Jesus our Lord. Colossians 2, 9-10 For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. John 1, 14 and 16. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. John 10.10, I came, says the good shepherd, that they may have life and have it abundantly. This abundant life is not shallow. It's not a life of compromise. It's not a life of comfort. It doesn't mean that we are not called to take up our crosses and follow him and suffer with him, be found with him in, our, in his sufferings. It is not a life of freedom from hardship, nor is it always the fulfillment of our earthly desires. Christopher Ashe in his commentary says, Ruth does not teach us that if we are childless, God will give us a child. If we are unmarried, God will give us a husband or wife. If we are hungry, God will feed us. Or if we are depressed, God will make us cheerful. There is a sense in which we, in this age, live at the end of chapter three in the story of Ruth. We have some experience of the first fruits of God's grace and we are corporately betrothed to Christ our Redeemer. But we await the wedding day when all our longings will be fulfilled in the great consummation of the wedding feast of the Lamb. There is a fullness in Christ for which we wait, we long for, we have not yet received. We await that wedding feast of the Lamb and there is a fullness that we know today. Do you know that fullness in Christ today? The forgiveness of sins. How rich is that not all by itself? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, the peace that that brings. Do you know that peace tonight? Has your shame been nailed to the cross? What about the indwelling of his spirit? Do we take that lightly? The guarantee that we are never alone, not for one minute, not for one moment in this life. The enemy wants to lie to you. He wants to get you to believe in your trouble, in your moments of emptiness that you are alone. Child of God, he has made his home with you. The joy of salvation, the resurrection life that tells us we are more than conquerors. What about the fact that even now, at any time, we can come to a loving Father who is wise and knows everything that we need, one who holds us fast. We echo the blessing that Paul spoke in Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you know that blessing tonight? This is the bigger picture of the fullness we have in Christ. Number two, the bigger picture of love, this theme of love. If you were to ask somebody, somebody randomly, what the book of Ruth is about, this is what people would say, right? It is a love story. It's a love story between these two noble people, Boaz and Ruth. And it's true, we certainly have seen the love that they have for one another. We've seen and we saw last time out the, the great story of redemption, of how Boaz is that picture of the Redeemer, his loving actions towards Ruth, his bride. But now, even at the close, there's one more trick up this brilliant author's sleeve. There is a word that we have not seen one time in the book of Ruth until now. What is that word? Love. We only see it for the first time in this entire book right here at the end, and it's not referring to the love of Boaz for Ruth or Ruth for Boaz. It's referring to the love of Ruth for Naomi. 
That's what the story, this is a love story. It's a story of the love that Ruth showed, the loving kindness she showed towards Naomi. Barry Webb in his commentary says, the supreme example of kindness suffused by love in the story, at least on the human level, is somewhat unexpectedly, not in the understandable and in that sense natural love between a man and a woman, but in the extraordinary love of a foreigner, a young Moabites for her aged Israelite mother-in-law who never fully appreciates it. In chapter one, when Naomi comes back to the land, while she's making her complaint, there's nothing to my life but emptiness. He has brought me back empty. The truth even there is she's not empty. Standing next to her is Ruth. Ruth had left home to care for her. She'd gone to the dangerous fields in order to find food for her. She'd requested Boaz's hand in marriage in order to provide an heir for Naomi. And the women who are rejoicing with Naomi make an astonishing statement here at the end of this book. It's extraordinary what they say about Ruth given the fact that the birth of only one son, the birth of one son is the climax of this whole story. They say, after speaking about the son, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. They say this, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, there's the word, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. That's astonishing considering the context and what's at stake in this child. It was the grace of God at work in the heart of Ruth that caused her to act in her own trial. In her own tragedy, she lost her husband as well. It was the grace of God that caused her to act in loving kindness towards Ruth. God's loving kindness, we learn, is the fountain. It is the source of all human loving kindness. And this is how God was loving Naomi all along. He was doing it through Ruth. He was doing it through the willing participation of Boaz. This book is about God loving his children even while they are accusing him of abandoning them. Oh, Christian, we should not. We should not judge God's feelings towards us on the basis of our circumstances. We don't look at our circumstances, at our highs, and say those are proofs of his good favor, and our lows, those are proof, that's proof of his displeasure. We know that in all things that he loves us in Christ Jesus. God was using Ruth to love Naomi and so much more than that. He chose Ruth as a recipient of his grace in order to be a channel of his love for the whole world, for you and for me. There's a wonderful little hint of this as well up in the blessing that they gave. I passed over it a minute or so ago, a while ago. I mentioned that we are to find it striking, this blessing, may your house be like that of Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. But don't you find it interesting, this inclusion of Tamar? When I read through it, I thought, why? why? How did Tamar get into that? May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Ruth. Now Tamar's story is colorful, isn't it, to say the least? I think there are some striking parallels between the two. Like Ruth, Tamar was an outsider to the covenant people of God. She married into the family, like Ruth, through doubtful circumstances. In other words, when, when they went into Moab, it was, it was a strange thing for them to do. 
And then for the sons to marry Moabite women. She too lost her husband and had no child. Both Ruth and Tamar took the initiative to pursue child and future. But here's where the similarities end. Ruth revealed her identity to Boaz and she received a child legitimately through marriage. Tamar concealed her identity. She received a child illegitimately when she deceived Judah and pretended to be a prostitute. She deceived him into sleeping with her. And the end result in both of these situations is a child, legitimate one, illegitimate the other, but children both who had important roles in the plan of God. And God, the gospel doesn't hide this truth. When Matthew takes up the genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth, what does he do? He includes the names of the woman, doesn't he? Perez came through Tamar. Boaz through Rahab, who didn't just pretend to be a prostitute, she was a prostitute at one point in her life. Obed came through Ruth the Moabite, Solomon through Bathsheba, and we know how that came about, the sin of David and having Uriah killed. And it's not like the men in that genealogy are any less questionable, right? Judah slept with Tamar. David had Uriah killed, and there are many wicked names in that list of kings leading from Judah down to Christ. So this book points to a, a bigger picture of love that is at the heart of the truth of the gospel for us. It is the grand message of the Bible. One commentator says, as Jesus himself put it, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He came to rescue sinners, people like his own ancestors, people like us. When he came to seek and save that which was lost, he didn't come garbed in special protective clothing like a scientist suited up to handle bubonic plague samples in a laboratory. At the beginning of his life, Jesus came into this world naked, unprotected, not separated from sinners, but descended from a long line of them. During his lifetime, he was likewise surrounded by sinners. This was the way that people knew Jesus as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. If he kept shocking company while he was alive, Jesus also kept scandalous company when he died. He was flanked by two thieves at his crucifixion. Thus Jesus went out of this world the same way he arrived, naked and unprotected. Jesus saves sinners and not by keeping a distance between him and them, but by identifying himself with them. Jesus became the friend of sinners and he laid down his life for his friends. Are you one of those friends this evening? We are loved with a perfect love because of what he did. We know and can say he became my sin, that I might become the righteousness of God. This is the love of God that runs deep in his heart for his children. It is a love that is more real tonight than any trouble that you are going through. More real than your situation is the love of God for you. Is the fullness of Christ that you know, is it enough? Is the love of God that surrounds your life, is it not everything that you need? Then rest in his grace. Rest in his love, the sufficiency of that love. Rest in the knowledge that you are part of that same grand story that God is working in this world. 
and love people the way Ruth loved people. Love people by trusting God in your times of trouble, trusting Him so that even in your trouble you're able to seek the good of others and put their needs above your own. Let's pray. Oh God, it is only and very appropriate for us to thank you so much for your love at the end of this book. We thank you for the love that you displayed through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the friend of sinners, that you did not keep a distance, but that you came and you dwelt among us. You came and you took our sin upon you. You came and you took the wrath of God in our place that we might have life in you. Now we are loved by you. Oh Lord, I pray again that you would fill our hearts with an awareness of this love. And Lord, we pray that as we are loved by you, we would be enabled to love those around us, to love those in our church and in our family and our workplace. Oh Lord, would you fill us with your love that your love would pour out into the world around, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.